paint on anything. You know what I'm saying? The world is all canvas. You know what I'm saying? We get our shit, you know what I'm saying? Boom, we mark our wall, we tag our t- tag our wall, we tag a building, you know what I'm saying? We might tag a motherfucking overpass, underpass, we, t- we tag that shit up. But we tagging hearts, we tagging brains and shit. We leaving our tag and our mark there, you know what I'm saying? Boom, that's what we do. Shout out to SDS crew. You see, painting the picture, just like telling a story. You know what I'm saying? This is like biblical times. We in, the, we, we in revelations, for real. Writing our story right here. This, this is our scriptures. We writing the last chapter, the last book. Know what I mean, right now. And it ain't with no pen. You know what I'm saying? It ain't with no typewriter. It's with a can. You know what I'm saying? And you better be glad it's with a can. To be graphing it, know what I mean? Because if we ain't use no can, we write this shit with your blood, nigga.
I need cash on delivery. Hey, yo. Hey. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening, guys. Welcome back to This Is Hardcore Podcast. You just heard Pillars of Ivory, the new track which dropped on Midnight, Leviticus. For those who haven't followed these guys yet, Aaron from Death Threat, Jay from Mind Force, they dropped two insane demos last year. First, the Genesis demo, and then the Exodus demo. Well, this is the follow-up Leviticus. This is going to come out on Triple B Record. You can pre-order it now. Genesis to Leviticus. And, yeah, what you just heard is very much what they dropped the last two times. It harkens back to riding in the car with your homeboy. He's making some mixtape. You don't even know what the fuck is on it. It's going from Bid Business to Madball to Method Man and everything in between. And I love the idea that it's some beats, some hardcore tracks, back to some beats, and the vibe, the recording, the playing off between the two guys' vocals. It's just sonically different than a lot of the stuff that's come out and so much more real. And for anyone who was stuck in a car for multiple hours every single weekend of the 1990s, you'll know what the fuck I'm talking about. The band sound is absolutely incredible. Really psyched for another track. I'm so happy they let us debut the Leviticus track. Came out at midnight. Check it out. Pre-order. Thanks to Jay. Big ups to Aaron Death Threat. And I can't wait to see you guys live when this whole thing opens back up. Real quick before we jump into Back to the Beginning, episode 36. I'd like to take some time to thank those who listened to last week's episode with Richie and the OG entitled The Rule of Three. The response was not overwhelming, but very, very warmly received on our end. And we're very appreciative to all the fans from the three podcasts for checking it out. And the overwhelming thought process that we've kind of got together on it is that we're going to do more. And we'll probably end up on its own channel at some point. And I'll have some more news Probably in the next two or three episodes, I'll have like, yo, here's what we're going to do with the rule of three. But the three of us loved it. Your response was very awesome. And we're going to do more. So thank you for those who checked it out and said, hey, you guys should do more because we're fucking doing it. When I say let's get back to the beginning, there's so many ways that this could go. In fact, there's so many ways that I could go in any direction when it comes to some of these stories that these people talk on the show, but thinking about how I had 35 episodes, and although in conversation it's referenced, maybe I should do an episode just about this is hardcore festival. <laughs> Sorry, I always want to say that, or maybe I didn't always want to, but since that's the intro to the podcast, it was funny to say in that regard. Yeah, so thinking about a way that we could introduce just a discussion about one This Is Hardcore festival. There's no other way to do it than this talk about 2006. This Is Hardcore. A lot of the things that led up to it. And although I had discussed previously between zines and podcasts and whatever other form, this is probably either going to be great recollection or you'll be listening if you're really into it and go, Dude, you totally forgot about this. Yeah, my bad, bro. It's uh, been 15 years 
just about since we announced the first one. And it's really surreal to think that we didn't do one last year. But I really want, before we go into a lot of the next stages of the guests that are going to come out in the next couple weeks, to just lock in and talk about a little This Is Hardcore itself as we keep going into Origins. It would be impossible to do it and not throw in the origin of the name This Is Hardcore, which then, you know, the fest, and then now this fucking podcast that kind of took over my life. And I hope that you're really excited or you're like, fuck this one, I'll get you on the next week, Joe. So strap in and let's fucking rock this jam. All right? For those of you who do remember the years 2004 and 2005, there were other festivals and something that had someone had wrote or said on the internet in a catty way was like, the way Joe was talking was that, you know, there were no other small festivals. And to some degree, that's a that's a weighted thing. When I decided to throw my hat in the ring of festival people, it was the realization that Hellfest, which was a fucking huge thing in the East Coast and all over. I mean, let's be fucking real. Even if you didn't know half of the bands, you knew bands that would play Hellfest would get fucking big. So that became a whole gimmick. And Posse numbers had been ripping and rolling for quite a few years. I think they had like started either 99 or early. It might have been 99 and 2000 was the first year or so. And they were doing great. And then, you know, like a lot of things, shit hits the fan. Sometimes they grow too big. And people beyond the scope of that community come in and things get fucked up. And I kind of feel like a lot of the festivals in the 90s so seldomly ran more than three to five years. And Helvis obviously had started very, very small in Syracuse and eventually just kept growing and outgrowing their locations. Where, as we talked about it on the Rich Hall episode, the Tim Moore episode, is like the thing got so big and unwieldy that it was only a matter of time before, you know, it would eventually crash and fall. And when you think about why someone would do something, you have to understand the circumstances around doing things. Or at least, what was going on? Like a fucking weather condition. What was the atmospheric temperature of the hardcore press at the time? And to be honest, Pennsylvania was in a great position. We had had Wilkes Bar, Pennsylvania, and Posse Numbers. We had had a small array of smaller little one- and two-day festivals and, you know, all-dayers, as people you say, the all-dayer was like the 90s term, and a couple ones that were bold enough not to call it an all-dayer, but, you know, put the word fest behind it. But, frankly, the only reason why there probably wasn't uh This Is Hardcore beforehand was that there was a Hellfest and that so many fucking people went to it. And then there was Posse Numbers. A shit ton of fucking people went and a shit ton of bands played. And I think that enough bands that people really wanted to see were playing those other things. So where was the market or window to present another option? And it needs to be said that in 2005 was the last Posse Numbers. And Hellfest 2004 was the last physical Hellfest. And it ended with Bad Luck 13 and a complete fucking riot and people spinning um, a entire 
set of bleachers, and you've all seen it on the internet, so I don't have to touch too much onto it. And then a giant marketing campaign where they were going to move this festival to a small team, like a small baseball team field in Trenton, New Jersey, a small little baby stadium. And they were going to have public enemy headline. They were going to go bigger and better than ever. And in a week or so out, it all fall apart. We spoke about this on, with the Rich Hall episode. We spoke about it on the Tim Moore episode. And so it wasn't like someone had said, all right, I'm going to throw my fucking hat in the ring. I mean, I wasn't even totally cognizant of what Sounds of the Underground was at the time. Besides, I was like, oh, cool. Tim and Paul and them are guys are doing something cool. And they had did quite a few really like sick things just like with tours. But this was like something of a different magnitude. But I didn't really think it had the scope to kind of overlap and take away tickets for like a hardcore thing. So that's always been my presentation. The window of opportunity had opened in the fall of Hellfest and Posse Numbers. Yeah, there was Sick with uh, Sync with Cali, and you know, people always look back and remember it like so fondly. And I think that there's going to be a time, probably pretty soon, where people are going to be waxing nostalgically for something that they were never at. But it needs to be said that in the ashes of Sync with Cali was the formation of Sound of Fury, the first group of people who did it. And thankfully, some of the uh, cadence of what the old stuff was like is back with Riley booking Sound of Fury once again. But that thing had changed hands a few times since Riley would come back. But at the stage where Sound of Fury was setting up, they saw the same thing. Cool, no posi numbers, no Hellfest, no sync with Cali. Well, fuck it, we'll do something. We actually worked it out pretty good. Like, And for quite some time, there was an entire hardcore scene that I believe not only flourished, but we kind of helped build like a track, like the way the explorers would go west. And, you know, these little towns would be set the fuck up. Well, you know, a town would might get one or two touring bands in the summer all of a sudden would have like a blacklisted Iron Age and Cold World and someone else as a show when they never would tour together because both bands were either migrating from the West Coast where they played Sound of Fury to the East Coast where they would play This Is Hardcore. And there are so many cool bands and things that came from these towns that didn't really have a lot of big shows until This Is Hardcore and Sound of Fury kind of opened up. And then the ball started rolling where these tour tracks were built. And that's something that I don't hear a lot of people talk about how these small shows that would be like sometimes an eight band show in the middle of the country, which would barely get two or three touring bands. And it's kind of fucking cool, man. And it's like one of the unintended positive con uh, consequences that came from us doing what we were doing in the East and Sound of Fury doing what they were doing in the West. So there's the motive, there's the window of opportunity. And when I think about how things get done, everybody has their own modus of operandi. How do they put things into motion? And as long as I can remember, I would have notebooks all over. And I mean, I'm currently running a job site and I have two notebooks in my pockets at any given time. When I'm recording these episodes of the podcast, I have two open notebooks, some with notes, some that jot notes. It's just a constant thing to write things down. Long time ago, I read a book called Write It Down and Make It Happen. 
Other times, I just need to visualize in a hard copy sense. And I don't know if it's like kinetically linking into my brain that if I physically write down this information, it'll help me remember. But all through touring in the end of the 90s with this warrior, I had a whole tour journal into Punishment Error, into Shattered Realm. I always had notebooks with me, jot things down, whatever it was. I also sold merch a lot, so it was also good to have a notebook with me. But in 2005, we were on tour in Europe, and I was discussing with Martine Stewart, who plays in guitar in Terror, and plays everything in every other fucking band, and he had decided to stay on from the European tour with Terror to play bass in Shattered Realm. And we were discussing this tour, uh, not a tour exactly, we were discussing on tour, this is hardcore in its you know, naked, raw form. And I did exactly what I did since the time before I started booking shows. I'd write a bunch of names down on a fly, on the on the notebook, and I and, and it's something I probably have never talked about because obviously I'm not a guest on my own fucking show. I've always played around with the idea of like great shows, different lineups, and very early on in this beginning stages of booking shows at the age of sixteen. I would constantly be looking at flyers and just trying to absorb not only what bands were playing together, but where they all fit together. And it's something that stuck with me. So I'm in Europe in a van and I'm just writing band names down. You know, I was thinking about bands that I didn't feel really got a lot of attention, but also because Hellfest had been molded one way. And with the collapse of positive numbers, a lot of these bands, especially stuff like Think I Care, I felt that although the positive crowd, or the positive numbers crowd rather, was invested in liking the band because Jason and all them guys were like a part of the entire Northeast hardcore scene, but I really think that a lot of people were starting to compartmentalize. And there was a crowd formed specifically around positive numbers, and there was a crowd formed directly around Hellfest kind of people. And it's something that I saw, it's fucked up to think about, I started seeing, you know, almost 20 years ago, specifically human beings that were like festival goers and bands that would grow directly because of the festival, whether, you know, it was the metalcore stuff, yada, 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 the Warp Tour stuff, it all kind of seemed to come from a bigger show than just being like the journeyman hardcore band. And so that was my initial thought. Like, I really would love to see a festival that celebrated what I thought at. You got to remember, we're talking about I'm 25 years old at this point. And so at 25 years old, this is like my idea of the kind of bands that I felt like could use the come up. And I felt like would be a good, you know, working symphony together, so to speak. And as I look back at it, there were some bands where I'm like, Fuck, I should have totally thrown this in it. And then there's other bands where I totally understand why I did it at the time. But to stop rambling as much and get on point, this is hardcore started in a fucking notebook in Europe, just writing names, man. And and then from there, an email to Sean Agnew. Now, I need to go back to 2005. Could even go back to 2004, 2003, yada, yada. But needless to say, for those who have not heard me reference him a million times on different episodes, Sean Agnew is the reason why anything of this arc ever happened. Sean Agnew would rise from the R5 Productions world, which we talked about actually recently on both the Norm episode and the Darren episode. And 
he was directly like a mentor and the reason why I was starting to be able to do shows at the First Unitarian Church. And so in 2005, Hellfest fell apart. Dun, 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 dun. To the rescue, Sean Agnew. And to some degree, Timbor. Another degree, some shows Rich Hall had going on. Robbie Redcheeks threw a show or so. And it was like this immediate like Justice League of people who were scrambling to help people who had already traveled, already planned to play, and didn't have the money or any kind of like recompense for a canceled festival. And so a shit ton of shows were booked all around the Philadelphia area. I mean, I'm talking about Philadelphia, Trenton, Sayreville, New Jersey. It was pretty crazy how fast this all got pulled together. And the big show was the Lifetime 108 Double Reunion which is sort of funny and ironic because the night before Lifetime played at the Trocadero on the Friday, 108 would go ahead and play a Saturday morning show, which sold out at the church was comeback kid and a bunch of bands. So they were both reunions, but it was like the day after they probably did the reunion and Sean Agnew, R5 productions pulled that shit together, pulled all that shit together. And we being the fucking goons that we were, were security and just extra hands to help this thing get facilitated. And the show that kind of kicked off some of the gears in the back of my head running was the Lifetime Show. And in fact, I remember standing there thinking this is the hottest place in fucking earth. And it was a pain in the ass. The stage wasn't built for hardcore. It was a weird like church set up, like those tall but wide, weird steps. And that's where we're going to have this show with over a thousand people. I don't know who, the fuck, who knows how many fucking people are. It was fucking hot. And so we do the show. And I say we, it's it's all showing. But like we were running security. We're all hanging out. And I was like, fuck, man. People actually would come to Philadelphia and see like a fest situation. Because that was like one of like five shows happening all in the city in like a two or three day span. And I was amazed how many fucking people would come down here. I mean, it's 20, you know, we're not talking about bougie Philly now with vegan John shit and grindcore and whatever. We're talking about like bop, bop, bop Philly when houses were still $75,000 and gentrification wasn't really a thing yet. And so had Sean not been the guy to save Hellfest, I don't think I would have seen it nor because Sean and his insane ability to just find venues. I don't know if anybody ever would have fucked with the Starlight Ballroom the way we would end up fucking with the Starlight Ballroom. So I'm on tour. I'm writing this thing down. I heard Hellfest wasn't going to happen. I got confirmation positive numbers wasn't going to happen. Someone had said, yo, I think they're doing something in Cali. So I'm like, yo, let's do something on the fucking East Coast. So I hit up Sean. And he's like, yeah, man, if you want to do something, I'll help you and I can show you how to do it. So... It needs to be said, day one, 15 years ago, I send that email. Sean says, yo, man, best of luck, bruh. Let me know how it turns out. I don't know if there would be a this hardcore. So much love and appreciation to Sean I knew, who twice drove money on his bicycle down to bow me out and one of my favorite people on planet Earth. So get home from tour. And I have some bands I've spoke with. I'm trying to lock some shit down. And I don't really know what to fucking do. 
I know what I want to do, but I don't really know how to do it. And and that's something that I'm really going to get into later on. But, you know, it's not easy. And then we were, by today's standards, which today fucking sucks, man. Today, you got a show that's going to happen in July or August. You might as well just fucking announce it 48 months ahead of time. Everything is so much longer. You announce a show, you got four months to have some dickhead email you and be like, Hey, I'd like the ticket towns. Well, it's just like two days ago, blank. The same amount. You know, like hardcore tickets sell very good in the beginning. And about a month to two to one week out, you'll see ticket sales move. Very seldomly as there jumps week to week unless it's something that sold a lot and then the last one's trickle and it's going to be a sellout. And looking at the internet post to kind of do any kind of... uh we would call it like research or just trying to like pine for information so that way I'm not sitting here going, uh, yeah, and then, uh, I can't believe we fucking announced this shit in June and it happened in fucking August. Like, by today's standards, like any quote-unquote booking agent would be like, we need, we need everything on sale by this time. It was so much more chill and so much more DIY and I needed to put that in there. Like, the ball busting and the bureaucracy that would come for the next 14 and a half years. I'm just, I wish I could go back sometimes just to that moment, just to not have my balls broke. But yeah, so to start the fest off, only knowing that you want to do cool bands and having some semblance of a direction of where you think the show could go is kind of not the best start, you know? And um, there's a lot of backstory into my own personal life in... 2006 that I wouldn't even become aware of and I'm on the verge of announcing this giant thing and I get arrested and my life just gets like turned upside down and then one of my best friends goes to jail and then his grandmother dies and then his beautiful son is born and all this is happening And I'm so fucking crazy out of my mind. And yet, I'm like, fuck. I really hope I can still do this hardcore fest. And to some degree, I think even then, I was getting obsessed with the idea about doing this. And I I think it just comes down to wanting to have something where everybody comes together. It's a rare commodity in 2021. And it was... Also rare in 2004, again, because of the compartmentalization and the way that people started being able to find their little corner of their niche world and weren't quite naysaying, but definitely were not trying to cross the aisle and like be the posy person who hung out with the skinheads or the skinhead dudes who had friends with the upside down crosses and the crust punk patches. Everybody had their little corners. Everybody was happy. And there wasn't social media or even MySpace at that time to really kind of say, fuck you. Maybe there was MySpace by then. Who the fuck knows? Or Friendster. Who the fuck was it? But um, so I just like the idea of shows the way they were when I was younger, where the scene was amalgamation of different styles of the underground, kind of like that YourScenesucks.com. And I thought erroneously, like, if I book all these bands, so many people will be psyched. And 
now looking at it, it's a very slim margin of people that would check out the versus is hardcore. And by the stretch of the crowd size, it wasn't the biggest, but I mean, we were well over what I had ever thought would come see some of the bands. And I owe it all a lot to the fact that Philadelphia started rising as not only a place for hardcore shows, but that little jerk off baby Bob Wilson, Boyo Babo, and his psycho band Letdown was really a fucking force to reckon with. And also that same summer might as well been one of the first, like not cresting moments. Cause that's like towards like the end, but just like this fucking crazy fucking time for blacklisted where, you know, blacklisted was some or a lot of hardcores and all be all. And when we initially had planned to have the festival, we were going to have another band play that Sunday. And then the band was like, fuck this. We're doing these two shows. And when we come home, we're breaking the fuck up. And so when we did announce it or not soon after, Blacklisted end up being the last band on the last day. And for, I don't know, a month or so, maybe six weeks out, maybe seven weeks out from the fest, they end up being like, you know what? Fuck this. We're not breaking up. And I mean, it's such a smart idea because there were so many more peaks and things for them to do and records to release. And I think a lot of people who loved Blacklisted don't even really realize that now. That Like at the time of the first, this is hardcore. Blacklisted was going to be the last band and that was going to be their last set, which is kind of surreal if you think about it. So this was the write-up, and it's kind of funny to think about because I touched on some of what would actually would just go ahead and <laughs> be in here. Seems like over the last few years, our small hardcore world has come to depend upon the Summerfest as a staple of the calendar year. Records are released, the bands will set the tours up based upon them, and despite the headache and chaos each year, we look forward to them. 2006 is a great year already for hardcore, and yet with no Hellfest. Actually, thankfully, remember last year? No posy numbers. We are bringing forth this is hardcore. Not meant to be a carbon copy of either fest, but instead a weekend of shows supporting the real bands, the real labels, for the real kids to come out and enjoy. No big money marketing scheme, no mall marketing, no pretentious pecking order, just awesome bands at the excellent venue put together by hardcore kids who are active participants in our own scene year round. Now, some of that was a dig. And I have no fucking problem getting into it. Uh, there was some digs at Keith from hell because there was a whole thing about him basically besides his band leveraging shows because he was the Hellfest booker that a lot of people became a lot like what industry people in hardcore do from time to time, like interested in the industry of what makes them money, not so much in the community, the betterment of the hardcore bands that are not going to be these giant successful machines and that's kind of where my head was focused in that and you know at this time remember also punishment the band i was in decided not to play shows anymore for a while because lineups were unstable i joined shattered realm and was touring a lot and just for me i didn't even believe really that there were people often in hardcore who weren't thinking about the next step in their quote-unquote career yet all i saw you know coming through town 
in these smaller shows and these different places and when we would do some mixed bills were these bands that didn't give a fuck. Seven inches and just doing it and not thinking about like managers or booking agents, but just like, yeah, let's have one shows, let's fucking do shit. And it was kind of invigorating. So specifically when I was saying that real bands and real labels for the real kids, there were bands that were still like using that step stool ladder. And I've mentioned a couple of them in different podcasts. I won't slam anybody on mine because I feel like our best energies on this and you listening should be put forth in the most positive light. And you don't need me to be shitting all over bands. But there were a bunch of tourist bands who said, you know what, we don't even have a fan base. Let's play a bunch of hardcore shows till we can get marketed elsewhere. And quite a few of them are still like celebrated and heralded. And you're kind of like embarrassed because... If you look at the beginning of the band, there was never any thought. We're like, yeah, like we're a hardcore band. It was like, we have nowhere else to fucking play. And we know that hardcore shows are the easiest fucking things to do. And I felt in 2006, there was a lot of those bands getting a lot of the attention when there were these fucking crazy awesome bands. And so this was the first announced lineup, but obviously there was a lot of things that changed. Terror, Blacklisted, Death Threat, Righteous Jams, Cast Aside, Death Before Dishonor, Guns Up. Betrayed, Strength for a Reason, The First Step, Eternal Affairs, Cold World, Triple Threat, Depression, Learn, Iron Age, Wisdom and Chains, Like It or Not, Colin Arabia, Set to Explode, Live in Hell, Meltdown, Ceremony, Bitter End, Go It Alone, Know the Score, Attitude, Letdown, Van Damage, Brain Dead, and many more, including more headliners. Which, I mean, Jesus fucking Christ. 2006. I don't know. There's definitely probably been better. But for me, I was like, holy fuck. Also, let's just fucking be real. The whole motherfucker all in was $45 for the weekend. And we've never spent a shit ton of money on uh, marketing. It's never really come back to us. We have never been someone that could get big brands on board. And we just had smaller numbers. So we're never going to be that. And so it kind of became you know, to some degree, a way of saying, like, we're bringing things back to a normal state, like, back to, you know, supporting bands for the band's sake. And in that, that's actually true. That's, like, not like a, you know, let's let's fucking market this as hardcore as that. That's the real deal. That was the mindset. That's where I was taking it. And, you know, again, $45 fucking for three days, and it's like, I fucking wish tomorrow... If any of you motherfucking bands out there listening want to say otherwise, I'll put on the best show for the lowest amount of money. But the problem is, is it costs way more money to do different venues. The bands, seeing how much money comes in and knowing that they could easily play other places and make big money, which was another thing that would come into play, is that there were smaller festivals like the So What stuff that was getting giant money to book hardcore bands. And I don't begrudge any single hardcore band for getting a shit ton of money to display some dopey-ass shit. But it was cool to me then to be like, yeah, fuck you, this shit's real. And so that was and is still a part of it, though. As things grow, yeah, you know, I never really saw myself in that first bit being able to even pay a band four thousand dollars like if a band asked me for that and they did and i was like befuddled what to say because uh really in this kind of like you know it's like 
in this in this economic situation, you want four thousand dollars because the word fest involved. <laughs> you know, like I was fucking absolutely stunned by some of this in the very beginning. But I've always been a big proponent and supporter of the bands, and I've always paid bands very fucking fairly. And so it's not me saying like fuck these guys for asking for money. I'm just saying this: you want a forty-five dollar for three days or the hardcore shows like that now. I don't know if it's going to happen. So get a fucking time machine or something, all right? Another interesting thing to understand about This Is Hardcore, from 2006 to 2011, we were dealing with one of the craziest human beings on the face of the earth, Mr. fucking Chan. One of my favorite, I mean, I wish they could have just entire TV shows about him. He was not only one of the just most random humans, just someone that only Sean Agnew specifically knew what he wanted, how to keep him from like canceling the show, all the different things. And I love him, man. I love him. His son was fucking awesome. His family was great. (laughs) But like, I think like the week before the fest, they like cut their own holes in the roof to like build their own air conditioning which anyone who's been to the This Is Hardcore Fest knows that that, especially that first venue, was a hot motherfucking mess, you know? And so I'm drinking my uh, Jocko Go, by the way. I'm not sponsored by Jocko, but this shit is fucking great, especially when you're doing podcasts. So when I think about this skinny-ass room, hot as fuck, and just understanding that Sean didn't even really have a full way to understand what Mr. Chan may need at any given time because it could change. So there was like all these like hilarious moments where Mr. Chan would come in and make a weird little complaint and Sean would placate him and a weird little, I need you to do this or else. Or there's, you know, like, and Sean always had to deal with it. And that's a lot of what would happen in the actual running part, which we're jumping a little ahead. But like the venue itself was crazy in an area at the time which was seen as a just not unusable space, but a buffer zone. Right at the beginning of Spring Garden was in neighborhoods that they didn't really give a fuck about, and I think they let purposely fall apart because obviously, as we're talking about Philadelphia in the 2020s, all those fucking areas are booming. And so, like I've always said, they've always let Philadelphia and real Philadelphia suffer so new people from New York and whatever move in and make the fucking place pretty. So this is like shitty block. Not a lot of parking, though. They own the building at the time across the street. So there's this crazy parking lot and more Mr. Chan shenanigans about who can park, what bands were allowed. It's just all this extra like nonsense, which was just like, to me, one of the funniest things. And I felt so bad for all the people that traveled the first year as the show's in the middle of fucking August. And you're left sitting on the side of a literally a summer street, which radiant heat and just Philadelphia nasty summer humidity. God bless you for supporting us then. Well, chasing bands at first was pretty fucking easy because I had friends in bands and I was booking shows and Shattered Rome was playing with a bunch of shows. And so in thinking about roping like the big bands, That was the hard part, and I'm going to give full measure of love and fucking respect to SB himself, 
Scott fucking Vogel. If Scott had not said, yeah, we'll fucking do it. I don't know if other chips would have fell where they were. Like, he was the domino that fell, and then people kind of, like, were like, well, if you have terror, I guess we're interested. And they didn't come with some bullshit, bougie contract. They didn't come with some agent who was like, and we need this, and gold towels. And it was, like, straight up, like, yo, do you think you'd hook us up with another show so when we fly out we can, like, not just fly out for one show because obviously it's your first fest and you guys don't have a lot of money. So we linked up with the Boston guys. The Vogel and them would fly, play Boston the night before, and then come down and play Philly. And so obviously since Teen wasn't like it or not, that kind of linked up how those dudes would end up playing, which in itself was kind of sick just because that band not only was just like, you know, I would say a newer thing, so to speak, but they never played another show on the East Coast that I'm aware of. I actually have a baller-ass 1917s record, like it or not, this is hardcore jersey that I'll never fucking sell, ever. Just because I don't like selling things. I hate when people resell them and resell them. It's like it's something my friend gave me. But, yeah, the the terror coming on board was incredible. And, again, at the time... Yeah, we knew Blacklist it was playing last because they were like, fuck this, we're done. And thanks, Scott, man. Thanks for believing in us. Thanks for giving us the fucking opportunity to have some valid dudes who are killing it with their band. And I mean, one of the funny stories that we sort of touched on, I don't remember we did, but I learned a lesson about bands when they're on tour and then when you get them to play fests in this way. We asked Scott to do it, no contracts. I mean, it's like, hey, do it, no contracts. This was no contracts. Like, hey, we'll fly to Boston. You get a show, then we'll come play Philly, yada, yada, yada. And I was handing out flyers, and Tim Bohr was like, you have terror on this? And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, they're playing sounds of the underground. That's like a proximity problem. I went, no one gives a fuck about terror there. Come on, man. Which I was lying. Terror had a fucking sick set. It was actually nuts. But... Whatever happened, Tim was kind of like, I'm going to have to penalize a band. <laughs> I was like, oh, fuck. I asked Scott about it. He's like, ah, you know, whatever. We're doing the fest no matter what. We're not canceling. And so, yeah, that like that was the that was probably the band that validated This Is Hardcore. And Scott, for those obviously didn't hear the episode, I booked Buried Alive when I was 18 years old. So that was 98. And then eight years later, he would come and play this hardcore and thus validating us. So there's like a lot of weird other shows that happened around the weekend of this hardcore 2006 around the time of the fest or strip on it. And there was a show with leeway booked like the week before or the week of, or something like that in Asbury park. And I actually had a weird-ass conversation with Eddie at the time. Which, for those listening, Eddie has shaved his head. He has gotten through his second round of chemo. And God bless him, he's still fucking doing well. But I get on the phone with him and have a discussion. And he's basically interviewing me as to like what my protocols are. Well, not protocols, uh, what my like you know resume was to put together a festival and leeway ends up playing the show at Asbury park that like nobody fucking goes to wasn't even a big deal. And it would have been so kind of sick 
to have Terror and Leeway as a both on This Is Hardcore 2006. But probably would have been too much, and it, I probably would have just lost my mind because at the time I wasn't really at that stage of like dealing with the Leeway-type bands, so to speak. And also, there was a Gorilla Biscuits, Comeback Kids, Murphy's Law Tour, which was the weekend before This Is Hardcore. And so there was no way that that was going to come the same weekend as the fest. So we did have the opportunity to promote. But to some degree, if the stars were aligned now or aligned then the way they are now, we probably could have had more juice. That's the irony. When you're starting off 15 years ago, GB's not making sure their 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 tour comes through Philly the same time as this hardcore and Leeway's not saying, you know, now nah, we'll play Asbury Park. We're not playing your fucking shit. Everyone would have done it. But, you know, we kind of started out with, like, Raw, almost nothing. And I had actually heard from my brother, Hard Fucking Carl, that Rancid was coming through Philly the same fucking weekend as his hardcore. And H2O was playing one day. And Fearless Vampire Killers was playing the next day. And I was like, what the fuck, man? Like, we got Gorilla Biscuits, we got the fucking Leeway show, and we started reaching out. And the luck of the draw, the Friday night of This Is Hardcore, end up being H2O, Fearless Vampire Killers. For those who do not know what that is, that is or was John Joseph's Mac. I don't know if AJ was playing at that time, but it was basically what would be the Cro-Mags before the lawsuit where they were Cro-Mags JM. And we had booked um, Fearless Vampire Killers at the First Unitarian Church with Blacklisted a year, actually earlier that year, actually, to think about it. And so it was cool that John and those guys were down for This Is Hardcore and I think because H2O at that time was like a completely... Actually, they are a completely East Coast band, I think, besides his brother and Todd. But I think they were a West Coast band, so it was good for them because they could fly out, play the Philly show as this is hardcore. Rancid show at the Troc was already sold out, which now you think about Rancid now. Like, they play the Electric Factory, which holds like 3,000 persons, or they play like five to 7,000 people with like Dropkick Murphys. By the time they were still playing the truck. So we got lucky, man. We kind of got lucky. We had like legit headliners, or at least I'll say people, bands that would play that people beyond the younger 18 to 25 crowd would give a fuck about and kind of give you some name recognition when you're calling something this is hardcore. I think it's important to touch upon the fact that I've never actually heard Pulp, this is hardcore, the record. I didn't really even understand what it would be like to name the fest. And and again, with that writing in a book, what do you do? I I don't even... I'm being so fucking honest, I can't remember another possible fucking name for it. And I wish I... Had I had my email that I was using at that time, I probably would have looked up and shown you whatever the ideas were at that stage, but they're not, I could not fucking, I can't for this remember. So 
I guess I just landed at This Is Hardcore, and I remember sending it over to Sean and him being like, oh, that's cool, and then him sending over, like, the record, and I felt so fucking stupid. But here we are. <laughs> you know, um, there, for the record, is a This Is Hardcore, which has been a Belgian hardcore techno festival going on for quite a few years before us. Luckily, it's in Belgium. Those dudes can't fight. So they've never tried to come to Philly and kick my ass with a name. And so we both do our thing in our own world. And I support This Is Hardcore in Europe. Now, going over, I kind of said all them band names fast. But again, it, 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 it is important to just really focus on the fact that there was a lot of fucking killers on this, but there was also a lot of bands that were like sort of doing it either for the first time or were just getting the names really out. And so there was this tour and it was Betrayed, which obviously was Todd from who would go on to do Nails and a Ram for Champion. And they were on tour with Internal Affairs. And yeah, like I'm trying to see that. I'm trying to see that tour. I'm trying to make sure they play the fest, you know? And so we got lucky that those guys were kind of out together and we were able to link up. Um, for me, thinking about what Iron Age would become and rest in peace, Wade. But like, I I knew that band was on the rise and I was lucky that Timmy and them guys had had them come through. People knew what the fuck they were. And I was solid, like, okay, yeah, Iron Age is going to fucking rip it, you know? But, like, also, like, looking at this flyer is Righteous Jams, and they would end up playing on the Saturday. I believe it was something, like, and and, and, I, and I refuse to use a cheater sheet so I can go over the list and be like, here's it is, because I think it would be more fun just to look at all the names and kind of, like, place them as I remember them. But ultimately, like, the last three, three or four bands on Saturday was, like, some fucking goon shit. Like Terror, Donnie Brook, Death Threat, Righteous Jams. Probably Terror, Righteous Jams, Donnie Brook, Death Threat, because <laughs> that's how my fucking brain worked then. And uh, you know, in the days of the cruise shit, it was kind of cool to have all our friends' bands all kind of play with each other. But you know, in 2006, Terror and Righteous Jams back to back is one of the most wild fucking shows, and they're really isn't anything else to say about that. And, I, and I'm and i kind of sad to some degree that Sonny wasn't out there shooting all the bands, but there also was some kind of beauty to it. But for me, one of the things that made This Is Hardcore 2006 great, which I'm not sucking my own dick here because there's a thousand bajillion fucking mistakes here. A million, million mistakes. But you can't start something off perfect so you need to make mistakes along the way. But what was great about it was, in order, you have, just like going through, you have Bitter End, way low on the bill. Ceremony, mad fucking low on the bill. Pil- I think the, the second band on Sunday was pulling teeth, I believe. And they play like 1240. <laughs> and I remember getting linked up and they'd be like, yo, Ceremony's a band from California. And I would come to find out later, their guitar player, actually, Anthony, booked 
this is hardcore. Uh, sorry, I keep saying this is hardcore. Booked Punishment and Ringworm in a garage after his show fell apart in 2003 because there were people drinking and playing cards. That kid's fucking awesome. And Ceremony gets on stage. I heard them, but I didn't know what it was going to be like. And at like 1.30, I realized like, oh, fuck. This is a different universe in hardcore now. So, yeah, I'm talking about Terror, and I'm talking about Donnybrook, and I'm talking about Righteous Jams. But there was a tide changing. Not like those bands we've forgotten, but there was a newer kids and newer blood in the, in the fucking water here. And and it was the ceremonies, the pulling teeth, the Cold Worlds. I mean, Cold World was pretty big in our area. They were like the banger along with like Blacklisted, and that's why we kind of put them all together. We put like Cold World, Blacklisted, Wisdom and Chains, Death Before Dishonor, like stuff we knew, our area, you know, Strength for a Reason. A lot of the PA hardcore stuff we kind of put on the Sunday as like a local thing because initially it was going to be Blacklisted's last show. But yeah, the Bitter Ends, the Iron Ages, these are the bands that would slowly shift the midpoint of the 2000s over. And to me, it's fucking great. And it's great to see it on the flyer to be like, what the fuck? And I mean... I, I, I still think to this day that one of the biggest mistakes I made was, and, and I'm, I'm a big enough man to say it, is that there was some kind of thing between Ruiner playing and saying something at Sound and Fury, and I got all pissed off, and then I didn't put Ruiner back on the bill of this hardcore for a couple of years because I thought it was lame. And I'm glad I don't have that ego or, like, I need to, like, have my say but not like it's like nah man I like Ruiner obviously we've had Rob on the show and I've grown to be like that's my fucking boy but one of my bigger regrets with this hardcore is like getting too involved in what motherfuckers do in other fests you know especially when it's not something like heinous it's just like oh well my friend got mad so I'll be mad too kind of deal now I'm looking at this and and It's hard not to get choked up, but, and I'm not like, oh my God, I'm going to fucking die, you know, but like, I'm a little sad, man. Like, I'm looking at a cool ass drawing by my friend Sean, and Sean had a crazy amount of problems, but he was an artist, and at a time when he drew this, he was the beloved of basically like a sister of mine. You know, and um, he drew this awesome Philly truck, tall hand graffiti, and I fucking love it. And I'm I'm actually thinking of repost, reprinting the posters for every year of This Is Hardcore. Because we've only did a couple cool looking ones and a bunch of ass ones. But Sean's really just stands out. And it's one of my favorite ones. Um, And I'm looking at these names and... It just cracks me up that we put this together. And it cracks me up that I'm looking at something where, you know, a couple years ago, we said goodbye to Sean. He would suffer from brain cancer, fight it on for a very long time. And I can't tell you how many times I would tell him, dude, you're going to beat this. And 
Really fucking sad that it didn't work out, but the poster is fucking sick. I think we're going to clean it up a little bit, have a friend, and we're going to reprint them just because I know people have asked about it before. But looking at this, I realized that there was this band from Atlanta called Depression that was on the flyer. And I know, fuck, if I went downstairs, I could probably grab like a This Is Hardcore, the year of Laminate and tell you every single band that played every single day. And I could be like, factually, this is what these bands played, and this is the order it was, and blah, blah, blah. But it's not really as much of importance. In fact, I think it's kind of, at least for me, kind of fun to just kind of like wade through. Like, getting Think I Care on the bill. And then the motherfuckers, basically, that was their last show until they did a reunion. (laughs) And people be like, oh my god, I can't believe it's their last show. <laughs> I was like, oh. I mean, I've never, I, obviously, you know, getting people to come to your concert because you have money that you have to pay other bands and bills you have to pay is something that is in the job of a promoter. But I've never sought out last shows. And I am stuck at times where I don't want to have a band who is not like either a Philly band or a band with like a big This Is Hardcore connection doing their last show at our thing unless like it's because so many people will come and it's a good spot for them to do it. And so it was just surreal like, oh, cool, yeah, yeah, we're done. That was it. I just want to do one more. And I guess it's like a total Boston thing to just be like a fucking badass band and just break up. And that's what those motherfuckers did. And uh, I appreciate them being on the bill. (laughs) So the show was August 18th, 19th, 20th, 2006. And we had a decent amount of pre-sales, nothing to make me go like, oh my God, we're going to fucking lose money. This is going to be so nuts. But we also, you know, knew what was going to be taken on the first time specifically. We knew that there would be a chance that You know, it wasn't going to be like a big deal, but I felt the whole time like I was going to see a lot of my friends that I hadn't seen. And again, I want to like really have you understand this. So we're on the same fucking page here. I have been arrested. I want to say like two months before it actually came out. And then so this is hardcore from 2006 since be kind of shifted from being some like I project idea that would be fun and you know be actually kind of cool you know I get to go ahead and do these you know different things and something I could do besides just the shows and it became like a way to kind of focus because there was a lot of bad stuff that would come in my personal life and a lot of things that way over your head where you're looking at like 10 years in jail and you have a family that is like fuck what happens if it goes away and there's so much chaos in my life that I like it's just like with this podcast I need a project to focus on yes I get up early in the morning yes I have a a job that it requires like physically doing shit but nothing can stop your brain and so since as long as I book shows and as long as I worked I've driven home from work in the cellular phone age which is like two fests from now. I didn't even have a cell phone at the Versus article 
fact, I think I got a, my first cell phone the year after. But I didn't even book this hardcore to cell phone. I think I did it all through emails and calling people on the telephone. And then writing down in the same fucking book where I write their name. And um, I literally needed this is hardcore just to get through my day. I needed this hardcore to think about, to be cool. Like, oh, this is going to be so much fun. This is going to be so much fun. We're going to do so much cool shit. And I mean, so many of my friends' bands <laughs> were on this. You know, much, I, I'll just go through, like, Much Love to Terror, Blacklisted, which was supposed to be their last show, and that being one of what would become, like, Blacklisted would be that, like, what today's pejorative, like, a Code Orange or a Vein type set. Like, you knew the Blacklisted, this hardcore set, and they played every year till they stopped playing every year. And, um, yeah, their sets were fucking fantastic. I also believe that in 2006, people were still, they were, you know, death threat had been shifting, but <laughs> that death threat shit was just mad ignorant. Righteous Jams we talked about, wow. Just like, if there there was a moment and it would come the year after, where they were just the fucking band. But that was like right on the crest of what, like right on the the rise before the big crest of what they would be. Um, Big shout out to Lejean, big shout outs to Wes, my boys and cast aside, Foz, like all these dudes. Like that was like the Richmond band. They came up and they played shows here. Punishment and cast aside played in other towns. Just so, you know, just so you know, like I always had love for Richmond, but the cast inside dudes were real, and it was cool to have like a Richmond brand representing. And that's something that I do think about, like having bands from specific cities, because you definitely want to see people in different cities come up and put on for their friends. That's what we do. Philly comes anywhere. You see it. PA Hardcore represents everywhere. Um, how could you not do Death Before Dishonor? And especially around that time when they were riding with the Friends Family Forever record. And really starting to get out there, like, I mean, dude, we had to build over so many bands because of that. But uh, they were fucking killing it. And Brian and Frankie and them guys are my brothers. But Brian, I mean, as I said on this podcast, I was sleeping over his house when I was 17 years old. And we still talk a lot. And we reconnected a lot over the COVID. And I just love him. And I love nothing more than when my friends' bands come and play and they have great sets. And I feel so happy for them. Guns up. This band was like coming up and I knew what they were about, but like, and they had, I think they played a church or whatever. And like, you know, I seen them at some church in Jersey and shit, but like, yeah, like the guns up era of hardcore is probably what 2005 and six was most like, like, oh yeah, that was a time when everyone loved guns up. And it's totally true because there's so many bands that like legit started ripping them. Uh, I actually fucked with betrayed pretty fucking hard to be honest. Um, Ram's my boy. I was very happy to to have him on my podcast. I really loved what he did, and then also the fact that we had, you know, two completely different humans in one band, in Todd and Betrayed. But I love the Betrayed John, and I was it's cool that we had them on the bill. Strength for Reason is one of these bands that people just. They know if they know, and if they don't know, it's their fault for not knowing. And I I see one of their first shows, 
when they before they were even called Strength for a Reason. I seen their first show as Strength for a Reason. Big Carl and them guys are great, and I'm just so happy that they never broke up. And it's kind of crazy that they've been going on longer than so many fucking hardcore bands that change their styles or change their what they're into. And strength is just strength, man. And if you're a PA hardcore kid or an East Coast kid or a 90s dude, you've definitely seen them. And I love when they can play. Anybody's seen them at the Keystone Jam, they fucking ripped it. Now, again, when we talk about all these different bands, you have to remember, for me, This Is Hardcore is not just like my festival, but an ideology where I say it's all one fucking thing. And that's what a lot of this podcast talks about. Like, you know, we go down the Norm branch with the emo stuff, the J-Tree stuff. I don't think often now that the idea adjacent to me makes any sense. Not in a physical way, but we're all from the same root. We're all from the same fucking root. We're on the same tree. We got our own branches, but it's all the same thing. And so there was a time when bands like The First Step and Internal Affairs, they might have played with a cold world. But at that time, they might not have played with a Dead Before Dishonor or Strength for a Reason. And that fucking made me nuts. You know, maybe I grew up differently, but I've always felt as if hardcore bands specifically belong or at least should understand that they're related to each other. And it's not like, well, that's not my thing. Like, you may not like the band, but it's still our fucking thing. You know, it's our thing. It's what it is. And so... From the very beginning, mixed billing or trying to mix bill. Remember, at this stage, um, sort of like a boogeyman, crew dude, jerk off. Maybe I still am, or maybe people think I still am. Now I'm more like I feel like I'm more like a forty year old hardcore construction dude who does shows and fest, and people might know me. And hopefully, you guys like the podcast. But then, I was a little jerk off, and recently so I was twenty five years old. Who isn't a jerk off at twenty five? So getting some bands on board was a little hard. But that being said, my fucking boy Tim McMahon from Mouthpiece had a new gimmick, Triple Threat. And I'm a, I was in the Mouthpiece, man. Like You can't go in the shows in Philly and around there in 94, 95, 96 and not see a Mouthpiece. Them in New Jersey at that time was out fucking standing. And anyone who saw them... And the AN shows are fucking crazy. Like, this is what this is. And that's why, like, years later when we did the AN shows, we did AN burn a mouthpiece. It's like, yeah, of course. Of course we're going to fucking do this. And, like, how crazy is it that Tim does this new band and they all look super young, jumping around, perfect hair, perfect sneakers. This is fucking cool to have them. Now, Depression bro- dropped off the bill and... They might even just broke up altogether. Some Georgia person, Atlanta, remind me what happened with this band. I think we played Shadow Realm and Donnie Brook played with them the the winter before that at that Uoji tour or something. And we linked up and I was like, yo, come play. And then he bitched up or something. Um, this band learned, played. I know I fuck with them, but I don't remember the sound. So sorry, dog. I'm being, I'm being real here. Uh, I, I talked about Iron Age, but like, you know, because of Pride Kills, because of Will to Live, and because of Timmy, and because of Bitter End coming through, we kind of sort of knew what this band was about, but that was like, wow, fuck. And like thinking about like all these bands, you know, converging 
and this time, like this is like their time. And again, I, I can't say again, R.I.P. Wade. Now, if you know me, you know that I fuck with Wisdom and Chains hard. Not because uh, Richie's been on the podcast twice. Not because I do a podcast with Richie. Not because he's one of my best friends in the entire world. I just love the fucking band. And when I was in Europe driving with Shadow Realm and heard them, I was fucking mind blown. I had Chris swear he'd be like, dude, you got to check out this band. And I'm like, dude, like we're going to hook it up. We're going to make it happen. And I know for a fact, Land of Kings, when the ones that came out and Wisdom and Chains became synonymous with this hardcore. And they've only missed one year. And they said they'll play every year. And we've kept our, we kept our world, we kept our word. Like it or not, the band, like I said, cool-ass soccer jersey, Martine happened to be coming through terror. Donnie Brook was already on the John, so they just made like it or not happen. So that's also an acronym for LION, which is like a playoff, LION's in this game or something like that, that uh, Donnie Brook. I think that's where the name comes. We had the craziest frontman from the Boston area, Colin Arabia, and Colin would go from playing a couple of this hardcore to just being like the highlight of the after parties. And it'd be like five in the morning. God, to think now that I would go run a fest party till like four or five, which I'm straight edge. So my party is like watching my friends and people being crazy, me and be laughing. But like getting no sleep, waking up and going to the fest and doing it all over again. It's like kind of fucking nuts, you know? Set to Explode was Dave from Striking Distance. Short lived project. Pretty fucking sick. Glad we had them again. You know, this is all go back to the whole idea of not adjacency, not something separate. Like, this is all our thing. You know, like, this is this is hardcore. I'll, I'll be corny. Fine, make fun of me. Whatever. It's all hardcore. When you get down the way, it's all punk. It's all hardcore. Different things. So when people say adjacent, okay, so you're not, you're like the tree next to mine. Well, I don't give a fuck about that tree. There's enough shit on this tree. I think what happens is, is the tree... It goes from the root to the branch, a root to the trunk, to the branches, and then you start zooming, zooming out, and all you see is grass, or you always see is the leaves. And you start talking adjacency, you don't realize it's all part of the same thing. And um, Living Hell was more of a um, Connecticut band, pretty fast, but I wanted fast. Like, you know, there isn't, if you listen to this, not a lot of this is beatdown stuff. You know, a lot of these bands were pretty fucking fast, to be honest. Con Arabia definitely was. Set to Explode definitely was. Living Thunder was a little bit more thrashy. Obviously, um, Ceremony set was insane with that. Um, there's a band from the Northwest called Go It Alone. They were on that tour with Internal Affairs and Betrayed. Sonically different fact. Yo, so another weird, this is hardcore, lesser known fact is that I used to make Excel sheets with every submission ever. And I would get emails with all the shit. And so I would save this shit. And so I got a fucking email from this guy. It was like, yo, this is my other thing. I still have these three songs from this Go It Alone dude. And this shit's fucking dope. Sounds like bands that I'm bad at describing. Because I can't describe anything that's not hardcore really eloquently. But I like it. If I can remember to find it and put it on a hard drive, I'll send it to anybody who remind it has the balls to ask me for it. But more rocky. I won't use the term post hardcore, but definitely has some 
faster moments, some Memorial Day-ish kind of moments, probably the best way to describe it. But yeah, hard, this hardcore was a lot of fast bands as much as there also was the Depohortis Honors and the, the Strength for Reasons. It was pretty fucking well balanced. Um, Bobby fucking Boyo. Bob Wilson. My protege. So many things in my life would be so much harder if me and Bob didn't link to be like the dream team. You know? I wish we were both swalt so every time we slapped and we did the... You, Dylan, you son of a bitch. You guys would all suffer, but me and Bob, too fucking cool lift weights, so we don't do that shit. But Bob and Letdown were a huge part of the Pennsylvania, outside of Philadelphia suburbs, but we literally grow to be like a scene that kind of repopulated hardcore in Philadelphia. And this is something that happens in Philadelphia hardcore a lot, is that very few true citizens of the city, like born and raised in Philly, even give a fuck about hardcore music. But these college kids that come, they stay here, they they love it, and they just become what's Philly hardcore. And if you know Bob, you know Mouse of the Palace, you know Mother of Mercy. Oh, fuck, he had another band too. Oh, Beware. And he had Letdown, where it all started. Now my boy has FYA Fest. But, you know, he's just one of these dudes that on paper, especially when I'm a 25-year-old maniac, and he's probably like a 21-year-old or 22-year-old, like, ah, uh, Joe's crazy, and I'm really like, nah, that's my fucking boy. You know, like, that was when we really started linking up a lot, and his band and his friends went fucking ape shit, and they played early, and their dudes went fucking ape shit, and I always loved seeing young Philly kids and young Philly bands going off, and something that Bob Wilson said to me, completely fucked me up. I was like, all right, where do you want to play on the bill? You can play anywhere on the bill with your new band. And he's like, I'm going to play first, man. I'm like, why the fuck would you play first on the Friday? And he explained to me that the line would get so long for the fest to get ready to get like checked in because Mr. Chan was so fucking nuts that like everybody had to be patted down like the whole way, like as if like, you know, we're a fucking nuke plant. And so... So many people would get checked in and they weren't going to leave that for as an earlier band, whoever was the first band on Friday sometimes had like the one of the best sets of the whole weekend, which is a Bob Wilson thing. Like I call it the official Bob Wilson memorial set like slot. And we always pick it for like a Philly local band that we want to see come up. And uh, there's so many touches that Bob and the guys from that whole area have had the agitator guys just in helping This Is Hardcore and just being supporters of This Is Hardcore, being supporters of me and just becoming, you know, like I'm an older dude out of my fucking mind and younger dude's like, ah, Joe's cool. We'll hang around him. So much love to them dudes. Meltdown is a band probably people would fuck with now. I wonder, I always wonder what they would say, but dudes from Meltdown that people would know would be Paulie, but also something that will eventually come up in the podcast when we do Andy Rice. Andy Rice is a drummer of Meltdown. He was a drummer of Sinking Ships. And he would go on, because of this time period where he was playing drums in Meltdown, where he would eventually book half this as lineup. Like, literally, fucking half this lineup he ended up booking. And I don't think there's enough credit, even though I don't really believe in credit, but there's still not enough praise, is a better word, 
the praise for how much Andy did to get bands like, um, it's pretty much almost half this fucking half this lineup. He would enter be their booking agent, and he had a big hand in shaping hardcore and like you know building Cruel Hand and all these bands up, and to think to think, oh yeah, he played drums in that band back then, pretty fucking sick. Uh, shout outs to Bitter End, you know. Not that Texas is the closest place to Pennsylvania, but it's always cool when bands travel far. And especially, again, like, I just think this again, we, I keep saying the same thing over again, but it's like iconic time. Iconic time in the sense where all these bands, which would grow to be the bands that all the people now either wax nostalgically for or praise as like their opening bands. Like, you know, like, this is what got me to hardcore. First time I heard, you know, Bitter End or the first time I heard Think I Care or all these bands. And, you know, they were all not at the top of their game, but starting to rise. And I think that's the biggest legacy of the first couple This Is Hardcores was being a part of helping some of these bands or just being the biggest show for some of these bands to play on the East Coast at that time. And I, I really just am endeared that some of these bands eventually would kind of cross over, which is why I brought up the whole Roots Tree explanation, is that it is really all hardcore, and it wasn't about being like, yo, we're going to get so big, and then we're going to get like fucking Mudvayne or someone to play. No, it was like, yo, let's get these fucking bands, let's get these new bands, let's get these... Eventually, old guys would come in, and they'd say, hey, you know, give us this amount of money, and it'll be fucking sick. But yeah, I'm running out of ideas. There was new, more festivals. The year later, United Blood started. Uh, two years after that, there was like an American hardcore festival in New England for one. You know, like it went from being like, okay, there's the East Coast and the West Coast. And then they're, you know, like they all started opening back up. So like, yeah, we had to do the older bands. But in the beginning, it was about these bands. That's what I was saying, like the working bands. Um, Shout out to Know the Score. The time they were like Florida based, very much like very directly fast under two minute songs. Um, when the time period where metal core bands would come in and have like, you know, blah 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 lyrics or like song title like snarky, clever play on words, these guys would have a song like X member of I don't give a fuck. I was a big know the score band. And actually I think they played the verse like four or five, I think. Again, I, I I wanted to do one like this where I don't get anal, which is ironic because when I talk to guests I get pretty anal and stuff. Because I like to draw in organically, like, okay, what do I remember? How do I feel about the fest? And so how I feel about this is hardcore fest is that everything I said. Thank God Sean said, yeah, Joe, we could do this. And thank God Hellfest had fallen apart and that Sean had found Starlight and Mr. Chan and started working there and built a crazy good relationship to the point where, like, so much cool shit came through, like the Gorilla Biscuits, Murphy's Law Show, et cetera, et cetera. And thank God that I had the presence of mind to not try to do with a lot of smaller promoters or younger promoters do where they like will spend like giant amounts of money for one or two bands and then like fuck up the meat like a lot of festivals it's meat you know it's like it's who's really in the bill and then you have to like basically pay 
for a name up top. And that's a lot of what This Is Hardcore now is like. I've got all these fucking bands that are sick at like the second to last, third to last, fourth to last. Fuck, i got to pay somebody to headline this shit. And then a lot of headliners are hard to get. But back then, it's the same thing. Like, who the fuck wants to play over a bunch of these bands? You know, like, obviously some of them were established and hardcore enough that they were willing to travel from, like, Texas and California and whatever. Or they would, with the case with Ceremony, was that they were already doing a tour through the summer. So they were like, fuck it, we'll play Philly. One of the funniest things is that, and I threw it in his face at Back to School Jam, the last one, was that Have Heart, I'd hit Have Heart and them guys up have hard verse, whatever. And they said that they were coming through and they were playing Richmond and then Baltimore. So they couldn't play this is hardcore, but they were willing to play a church show or a Philly show like a day or two later. And I was like, I don't know, man, it's going to be a pretty like big show. And they basically blew me off. Like, nah, but we'll stick to the church show. And it was like, have heart verse and ambitions. And they played on the floor of the church to like 50 people. Like two days after the first, this is hardcore, and I would be lying if I told you I was like pissed. I was kind of like, "Oh well, you fuckers missed a good show." And uh, two years later, we would book have heart. We book killing time, have heart, and verse, which now we would have to book like ten of those shows because every pop punk person who heard this them through the Spotify algorithm is a fan. But then it was just the hardcore kids and only 50 people showed up. And I wish they would just play the first. This is hardcore. So I could rattle on forever and just like word, like, you know, stream of conscious, think about this is hardcore and talk about it. But if you're still listening, I'm going to enter a Q&A portion of this and then I'm going to wrap the whole thing up. So that way you're not completely fucking bored and like, God, this fucking dickhead talks too much and sucks his own dick for me. This is Hardcore 2006 was a very emotionally trying time. I was at the festival, not not under not under house arrest. That would come four years later. But I was out on bail, concerned that if anything bad happened to me, I could go and lose my bail, which my you know, everybody who put money up wouldn't get their money back, and then I would be in jail. Until my court case, which my court case wouldn't even get settled till like the middle of 2009. So that would have been mad long. And I was trying to readjust my life in a way, not only where I was focusing on union work, which I got very lucky to get involved in the union at that time. But also I was focusing on a lot of things that I think would carry me to where I'm at right now. And as I said earlier, it's the project. It's the thing in my head, the thing to think about, you know? I don't give a fuck about the Flyers. In fact, I was at that show in New York City, and some dude's like, oh, cool, what's with the Phillies? So I talk about this Philly shit, and I forgot how fucking punishing like Phillies and f- fucking baseball fans are. And it's like, dude, I just said, dude, I'm from fucking Philly. I wear a fucking Phillies hat. That's what you're supposed to wear. No one's big dickhead, but, you know, it's not his fault. And so I'm not a sports dude, man. Like I, I watch the UFC and boxing and whatever. Why? Because I ain't nothing else to do. And I like seeing people get choked out and shit. And I watch a lot of jujitsu shit on YouTube now that I am a jujitsu player. But still, like I'm not sitting home jerking off the fucking Gordon Ryan videos. 
I'm thinking about shows I want to book. I'm thinking about podcasts. I'm thinking about like records. I'm thinking about like how the fuck is it that the FUs and Freeze and Jerry Kids are all South Shore bands and they're fucking so much meaner than what Slapshot sounds like or like SSD sounds like, but yet those dudes became like what was the pejorative dominant Boston bands. Yet by today's standards, it's more of the South Shore bands that are kind of like seen as like the real Boston stuff. That's kind of stuff in my fucking head. While I'm doing some whatever con- uh, concrete, if I'm not listening to some kind of podcast. And before all that shit, before podcasts, before... I, I don't even know. There, were, there was definitely no iPhones. I think I had like a broke-ass flip blown in like the middle of 2006 or 7. Or not 6, but 7 or 8. So there was this fest. And there was this idea like, what if we could get bands together? What if we could make people excited about just seeing bands that weren't public enemy or, you know... No diss to Life Agony, which obviously a band we've never had play. But, like, it was getting old for me to see people not fuck with regular-ass hardcore shows or good-ass bills unless it was something like that. And I think that goes back to the timeline. So, if you were someone who was a mainstay of the hardcore gimmick between, like, 94 to 96, maybe 97... You might be out by 98 or 99. So like 2006, it wasn't the internet that was snarky because it really wasn't so much so. It was like a show would come and happen and you'd see somebody who like when I was a teen because I was a teen in the 90s would be like, dude, I'm surprised I'm even at these things anymore. Kind of would like then be like, oh, that guy sucks. I don't know what he's even doing here if he's not happy. And I would watch so many people around 2004, 2005, just abandon hardcore, which is their prerogative again. I'm not really a big one. I'm like, fuck you for selling out, you fucking loser, or fuck you for, you know, giving up on hardcore. But I do get a little like, uh, keep that shit to yourself, man. Like, no one needs an exit strategy. No one needs like a, what do they say, like a like a commencement speech. Oh, you're done. Sell your records. Move on to whatever makes you happy and may God bless you. But I, I don't want to hear why you're no longer involved. Because I already know some fucking reunion or whatever happens, you're going to be back in the fucking door. We already knew that from the get. And so at the outset, This Is Hardcore was something to do that was, in my mind, a little different. And I can say absolutely we were not different because everybody had the same idea. And it would continue as like the year later, United Blood. Like, <laughs> it wasn't the most, you know, original idea. But there was an earnest thought in my head where, yeah, like why can't Wisdom and Chains and Think I Care be on the same bill? You know, like why can't Dead Before Dishonor? I mean, Dead Before Dishonor and Blacklisted played shows together because we're all friends. But like why can't, why can't we mix it up? Like why do we have to have these shows like it, like it, was like only build for a person who's dressed this way. I've never been really good at getting that insanely perfect primordial soup of like a perfect amount of like weird crusty kids and giant mohawks and skinheads and different kind of hardcore. I've never had that ability to have what like more like the European festival style draw is. But for me, I just wanted this as hardcore as a festival which is such a fucking fucked up thing to say festival at the time because it was like a really big show with some tables where my friends sold merch. A lot of people sweat their ass off. 
I threw a ton of people off stage, screamed at all my friends, and was getting like leg cramps on stage. It's fucking nuts. And I just wanted to do something that I thought was different. And now I think about it like, oh yeah, I had the same idea five other dickheads had. And uh, I'm happy I did. And 15 years later, I'm still fucking happy I did it. I don't know where my mental health would have been without like the ability to focus. And what would eventually happen is after year one, which was 2006, I was already rolling into next year. So like, all right, we're going to start planning and start doing. And then after that year, whatever band would say like, I can't do it. Can I try next year? So like by May of 2007, as we're working and ready to announce year two, I've already got bands like, I can't do this tour. I promise you we'll play next year. And until the fucking nonsense with the pandemic COVID shit, there was always bands in some weird buffer where they can't play one year, but they'll play the next year. And so whether I was in good or bad spirits at work, whether I was having a good home life or a bad home life, I could always cling to the festival and the focus that it took to work on it. Whether it was, oh, this year, well, you know, if I have this band, maybe if they can't play this year, I can prepare them with that. And it's like a constant puzzle in my head is the best way to describe it. So since you've listened for about an hour and a half of me just fucking rambling, now we're going to get some Q&A and wrap this bitch up. All right? So here we go. Were the headliners you had lined up that throw through? Actually, I read that wrong. So I'm a full dumbass. Were there headliners that you had that line that fell through? I mean... Leeway really was the one and like I remember driving to sword fighting or no I remember talking him the phone and then going to sword fighting after and feeling like I I don't even know what the fuck is going on because he was interviewing me and being like oh well that's great and you know if you can move your entire festival to this day because we're not playing unless it's on this weekend that we can't play and I'm like I can't move like 30 bands around to make this happen. And they're like, all right, we're going to play this instead. And there's a lot of lessons to be learned in that. Here you go. You have an opportunity to do leeway, but you're not going to move everything around for leeway. And I'm glad that we waited. I pray to God that he gets through this and I get to see leeway again. It's one of the bands. I, I And side note, well, I'm not going to get deep in this. Hardcore is a beautiful thing. The people that brought it to us are imperfect. But Eddie Leeway and some of the things that he has done in his early life, he has made up for and atoned for. He is a beautiful soul human, as wild as he can be. I love him, and I just hope that he gets through this so that way we can have another Leeway set. Um, Aside from that, I mean, there was always, there was always things that fell through, but I remember specifically Sean making a postcard that said, Secret crashed. Shh. And I think that was like some hype shit that he did because obviously him being like the the promoter, R5 Productions, I brought in all the bands. Sean did all like the real back end. If there was no ticket mask, if there was no tickets from him, which I think, I don't even remember what it was, the ticketing was that time. Um, There would have been no, this is hardcore. So I think Sean was just trying to like get people running. And he was kind of like, now you never know. Somebody said, hey, you know, We'll play it, you know, we'll play with Terror, yada, yada, yada. So I would say Leeway was something I was lining up. And 
nothing comes to mind. So maybe if something sparks up, I'm like, oh yeah, shit, I actually totally forgot. Hatebreed had a gap of their tour dates that had people thinking they were on the fest. Any validity to that? I mean, Hatebreed makes all of their money touring Europe. I want to say in 2006, there was a 0.00000 chance they'd ever play this hardcore. And I would say that that is precipitously not changed. I did Jasta in 8 or 9. Oh, 09. And it was fun. But I think that that's not a reality to have Hatebreed, unfortunately. And a lot of it has to do with their summer tour schedule and whatever. But yeah, we never had an opportunity for Hatebreed. Um... Since we talked about it, I, I will reiterate in a short form to this question. Was there a conscious effort to do something different than what the big fests have been taking place so far in the 2000s? Positive numbers, how fast I've been doing. Yeah, I mean, I really hate two f- fucking stages. I fucking hate three stages. Um, I played Europe at that time, and yeah, it's really cool to play in front of like a sea of like 10,000 people, but to stand in a sea of 2,000 people or 10,000 people, fuck that. Weird Viking beard people, shirtless, pissing in the fucking on the ground and living in a tent. Yeah, I mean, I wanted to keep it hardcore. I wanted to keep it honest. I wanted to keep it real. <laughs> I wanted to make sure that you were going to a three day show, that the time ran good, so you didn't stay till two thirty in the morning. Because all these all dayers and things that I was talking about, yeah, those motherfuckers were always off schedule. And bands always jumped on. Bands played past their set times. And I cracked a fucking whip. And we fucking got people on off stage. That's something legacy. Like a couple times some of the other bands stretch out a little bit or some technical difficulties. But for the most part, we kept the shit under control. You know, whole show was over by six on Sunday. And the conscious effort was to bring it back like $45 for the whole fucking weekend. Let's just, let's just make a good show. Let's make good, real hardcore bands. Which at that stage, I, I won't say it accounts for positive numbers to sync with Cali, but it definitely is good for all the other ones. It was like a um single single serve of like a warp tour moment with some hardcore bands for a lot of the fests that were not hardcore. And I hated all of it. So I want to do something better than that. And I think I did. What did you learn most from year one that you took with you for future years? Well at that stage in booking shows, I was fairly good with knowing old school show math and old school, I'd say, uh, the way we know to make things break even. But what would become like legendary would be these Excel sheets. And so Sean got me on like getting Excel sheets, blah, blah, blah. And I would send him. It's like Mr. Miyagi, I would send him all this crazy shit and he would organize. And then like he sent me an email with an Excel sheet and I kind of like learned how to use that. I downloaded, learned how to use that specific Excel sheet. And then for years after that, I would send him the craziest colors. And he'd be like, dude, I should be on asset looking at this fucking Excel sheet because I color every cell. So the thing that I learned most from year one that I took with me forever is I learned Excel. I taught myself the most minimal amount of Excel functions to be able to build a sheet out, to be able to compute um, not only 
how much money bands were going to get paid, what break-even number is going to be against the price. And then that way I could come up with a relative figure that if I had X amount of money, I could pay X amount of bands. I could keep a column with a running count of how many bands are getting paid what. And then, you know, cross-reference that with a, a table for taxes and all this shit so we can understand just how many people we need to break even. So, like, you know, I'm throwing at numbers so, you know, they won't really fucking add up. Don't fucking take your calculator out because it's going to be wrong. But, like, if I've got a band budget of $100,000, which would not come for so many fucking years, but then became, like, uh, I want to get down to a festival where we're not paying, paying $100,000 in bands anymore. But, like, you want to know how many people have to buy tickets so you could pay all the bills. And so the biggest thing that I got out of 2006, this is hardcore, which I took with me forever, is learning Excel and teaching myself the minimal amount of sales. And I've always been like, I should, like, you know, like I worked all year during COVID, so I had like no fucking quote-unquote free time. But now I'm realizing I waste a lot of time. So I will correct that by probably taking one of these like skill tests or skill things on the internet programs and really learning the rest of Excel besides how to make hardcore shows math work for me. Did you feel any pressure having the first big hardcore fest from Philly or was it playing with house money since no one knew what to expect? Again, I mean, now that I am looking at this from like a 40 going on 41 Joe mind versus a 25-year-old Joe Hardcore mind, I didn't have any fucking pressure because I was blinded enough to just be like, nah, man, this is what people need. Or like, I want to fucking see it. And I don't know if it was a force of will or just feeling like there were people who wanted something in Philadelphia after seeing the year before thousands of people on the streets that couldn't get into a two-band show in the very same room and being like, how the fuck do all these assholes want to be here in Philadelphia in this fucking hot-ass, bullshit-ass humidity? And so Philly Hardcore has had so many stages. And in fact, I've got this project podcast, much like this, and this is like a tester to see if you dickheads even want to hear me talk for this long. But Philadelphia Hardcore has like, rings like a tree of like oh and then these people stopped going to shows and then these people started and you know the ring comes out and then there was like the people before me and there are some of the longer staying people and then you have like even like Chuck Nehan and Neo Y Die and Jeremy Dean and you know obviously the Hard Carls and Jamie Davis's and all these people that were like they just were here you know OG you know, like all these people that just been here always. So I guess maybe the first big Philly Hardcore Fest by anyone's standards. Yeah, I would say I wasn't worried about Philly Hardcore at all because we were in the ashes of our, uh, not our five, but on the ashes of like Robbie Redcheeks really doing any shows. And so our scene was... Strong because of R5 Productions, Robbie, myself, all doing different kind of shows. But it's not cohesive like it is now. And so I knew or thought, oh, well, you know, a couple hundred people might come from a Philly, but 
a lot of people would come from out of town for the different bands. And when we talk more about other This Is Hardcore, this is just hardcore, this is hardcore in general, and it's affected in Philadelphia hardcore. Year one, two, three, whatever. I don't know. Maybe Jamie Davis and a handful of people came through because they're my friends. But by 15 years later, we had hundreds of people together for a generational picture of everybody who was at This Is Hardcore. Or actually, copy that. Or scratch that. Whoever was around that we could scream at to say, hey, if you're from Philly Hardcore, come take a picture. And there was well over 100 people in this picture. And back to the whole roots, tree, you know, analogy for hardcore. You know, I wanted people in Philly to look around and go, okay, all these people are us. I don't know why I'm stuck on identification so much or like trying to present like this is who we all are together. But it's a strong point for me. It's a a beautifully crafted strong point that like exhilarates me at times and reminds me of like my place in hardcore. And or and being lucky to be a part of something as beautiful as this is hardcore is because we have generations of hardcore people now. We have actual children, like kid, like be people who are like babies who are in their teens now for this is hardcore, and it's fucking beautiful. So, was there a conscious? Was there like a like a pressure? No, there's no pressure. Um, because I was pretty much shot the fuck out and my life was all over the place and I was like fuck it let's just roll the dice but also I wasn't worried about what to expect as much as making sure that what I could do to make sure people come I put a lot of effort out and I think I did a good job but I probably would be looking at what I did the first year as like dude you did nothing how the fuck do people know about it favorite memory from that year set wise in general you know um thinking about it there was a chilly moment right before blacklist it went on where they played the beginning of a henry rollins thing where he was talking about being on the road and i believe the lights were dark and it opened up and it was the last band that night. It was hot as fuck. And um, when they did Eye for an Eye, they, I don't know if we opened. I don't know if they opened with Eye for an Eye, but I know whenever I was gonna sing my part that I have in that, I remember putting on sunglasses because I thought I'd be mad funny. <laughs> and so I remember being on stage singing with Blacklisted, and I, I mean, we had played some pretty big fucking shows in Europe, like a couple thousands. And the European, especially the Eastern European and like UK and some of the German shows are pretty wild. But that was the coolest thing I did in my home city at the time. Like on stage with a microphone was the eye for an eye at during Blacklisted at this hardcore 2006. To me, like to see the little bit of a picture and I'm wearing, I'm bringing, I'm bringing straight edge back instead of I'm bringing sexy back shirt. It's fucking hilarious. How soon after did you decide you wanted to make this a yearly thing? Was there any thought of doing one and done? I I don't think that there should be any kind of immediate decision made. Because, you know, you have to have success. And you have to 
have I love many failures to want to create more success or do things better. You know, I'm lucky in that I suck pretty marginally across the board. So when I do something for the first time, I'm like, fuck, I got to do this better. Fuck, I got to do this better. And I have that kind of brain where I, if it's something I'm really into, I really drive hard at it. And if I'm not really good at it and it's something I have to do, like I had to learn how to do a couple things at work that I wasn't really psyched at. But it's like, yo, it's for work. This is how I make money. All right, fuck it. I got to learn. And, you know, you push yourself and you take the time. And I, I have a bad ADHD. So it's like I have to slow my brain down and go, you are going to forget about anything else. There's no like random thought that's going to steal from you. You need to focus because this becomes important. And I can really do that. And so this is hardcore. The minute it was over, I started something that I haven't stopped in 15 years, which was I write down the next day everything that went wrong. And so even if I didn't want to do one, that list would have stayed, this are your failures. This is what you have to improve on. The next time you do this, this has to be here. And maybe that list helps, but people had a good time. And I really like having people have a good time through the work that I do. It's fucking cool. It's rewarding. You know, standing on stage with George, John, and all them guys, and like, dude, all of our boys were on stage. This shit was crazy. And the night before, Terror played, and all of my friends are in town from out of town. It was fucking sick. The night before, H2O, which was like still right around a time where like they were the Philly band, like the Philly hardcore band. And they're playing for us. And like, you know, like from that moment on, I started booking H2O in Philly. And so, like, that was like another, like, holy shit. So. Because of the connections or, you know, maybe some of my stock raised as a promoter from having a successful fest for my first one out that it made it easier to continue. But I think it was in a, uh, like a bunch of those elements all one kind of put together. You did mostly small shows, hall shows, church shows prior to this. Was there any reservations to take a, such a big step in the venue wise and to give any thoughts, just finding a more DIY spot to do it in. I mean, I've said it a couple times, but like I was working off the back of Sean Agnew. <laughs> you know, I'm working off of like, okay, Big Daddy, like, couldn't do the church. And like that year ended up being like the last year we were allowed to do anything. Like, festival, I think Pointless Fest got shut down that year. There was a bunch of crazy shit that all happened. So the church, I think, was never going to be seen as, like, a place where more than four or five bands can play on stage. Though the Alone in the Crowd show, we showed them, didn't we? <laughs> um, Yeah, I, I mean, there are DIY spots, but I think because I came to Sean and was like, Master, I would like to do this. How can we do this? Can you help me that... Some of that situation was taken out of my hands and Sean just rolled with it. And so the byproduct was like, I booked all the bands. Sean then was like, okay, Grasshopper, here's how you organize all this. And then this is what we have to do. And little by little from 2006 to 2007, and then 8, 9, 10, and 11, 
I got it. Like, six and seven were, like, the harder ones to do because I was still, like, grasping how to bill, how to book, what kind of money to spend on bands, and some of, the, like, the weird deals with hotels and and fly-ins and the costs. We're all, like, learning things for me, so to speak. And so when I think about what you ask, was there reservations? You know... You got to be bold to do something this stupid, right? You got to be at least, if not bold, you've got to be willing to, you know, not give a fuck or something and to say fuck it. But also, I just believed in it, which may, I don't know if that sounds dumb, but I, I really did just believe that people wanted this. And it was probably echo chamber more so than anything, but, you know, there were friends who were like linking up and hey, what about this band? What about that? Hey, do you want this band? You know, and then Dom hit me up about pulling teeth, you know, like all these things kind of came together, you know? And so I'm, I'm lucky and I'm happy that my ignorance to what I was really getting into didn't stop me from being like, fuck yeah. And I'm glad that sometimes when ideas come to me, I just go, not what happens if it doesn't work. I go, I have to figure out how to do this. And and that's a lot of how my brain works in general. Fuck, I want to do this. Okay, how do I do this? Okay, who can help me do this or who can show me how to do this? And actually, that's a lot of why I do this podcast too. If you're really getting down to the brass tacks of it. I want to know what to do. I want to know how to do. I want. I know the people who can show me or they know the person who can show me. But I just want to do it. And doing shit because you love heart. Like for me, you know, first off, like anything that you've heard on this podcast is people who wanted to do things. People who wanted to raise their own kind of flag and say this is what I'm up to and and I guess influenced directly and indirectly by people all around me who were doing shit like that and not that like I, I had plenty of other things in my life to do besides like oh now I need to just stop my life and do booking shows like no I think it just adds another dimension like I was talking about earlier with the construction work you know the construction work goes so far where you have to pay attention you have to be safe but you're counting hours. I mean, I'm not sitting there going, God, I can't wait for this to be over. Some days, but you're counting the hours till your real life starts. And a lot of my years, because of this article, was jumping in a car and starting on the phone. Even actually in the way to record this was on the phone, on the phone, on the phone, on the phone. The whole way home, like an hour drive, just catching up on calls that need to get done. And I'm thankful for it. Like, I don't know where my headspace would be. Ultimately, I deem This Is Hardcore 2006 as a success. Probably didn't ball out money-wise as much, but it changed the trajectory of my life. So many cool things came from it. And it has like become now like the family reunion for so many people of This Is Hardcore. And for the Philly Hardcore scene... And really kind of gave us a a platform to be considered amongst the world stages. You know, like 
Super Bowl of Hardcore in 2005 came back to New York. And I think it was six or seven where it stopped being called Super Bowl of Hardcore and started becoming B&B Bowl. And so there were other things on the East Coast. I can't say there weren't, but for me, I just had this view that it all can be under one thing. And regret-wise, I'd say the name really limits what we can book to some degree. We fudged, or I don't want to say fudge, but like it's got to make sense. It's got to add up. And like, I don't believe in adjacency. I think adjacency is a lazy, stupid fucking word. And it's because people don't want to say, I play in this metal band. My friends mosh like hardcore people, but we don't know who SSD is. And we really don't care what Agnostic Front played. And yet, even still, the roots of it still comes down to hardcore to some degree. Or the roots is what it is. And so, had we had another name, I don't think that I'm the kind of person that would drive something to be a giant commercial success where, like, I don't have a job and my whole fest is like an office and I'm just fest, 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 fest. Like, I can't live like that. You know, it's why, it's for some reason why this is hardcore and hardcore shows in general are the perfect complimentary thing to do where, like, I go to concrete, I have that world. Get my car, I'm back at me, and then my bees and my me is in a uh, show world, so to speak. This hardcore has had a lot of changes in the way that I learned to communicate to people. You would not believe this, or maybe you will, but I, I, I do have a lot of social anxieties and tasks, things to do, reasons to be in public all kind of line up to be like, so why are we here? What do we have to do? Like, why can't we just not be here right now? Well, because we have this to do. Shut up. It's going to be okay. Like, there's like this little voice in your head. Or at least in my head. I don't know what's in your fucking head. And so, being a doer, being someone who has shit to do, has this up to down with the ADHD. I have a lot of compulsion to say, like, the first thing in my mind or react poorly at times. I really, in the last 15 years, has really kind of, harness that to to a lot tighter you don't see that side as much but I learned a lot from 2006 I'm indebted to Sean Agnew I miss so many people who have played in bands or showed up and don't come around no more because they're dead or their lives changed and thinking about where this is hardcore goes for 2021 and 2022 it was nice for me to revisit like the very beginning. And I'd like some feedback if you guys think I should have got really literal and read off all the fucking this Friday this thing. For me it was just like, hey, let's let's rock this man. Let's let's go into this because the upcoming episodes are not easy in the sense where like we've got Paul Conroy who would become not only like a giant A and R guy but later would be responsible for management companies that would change the way that hardcore bands would be able to grow as a brand, as a business, and stay like legitimately popular and solvent and be like become touring machines. And that's only one small port of that this dude's story is so fucking crazy. And then the next that's next Friday. And then we have 
people who work on tours. We got album artists. Like, I want to talk about album art. We talk about album art every fucking podcast, it feels like, because we talk about, like, their people's first. So we got album artists. We've got guys that wrote fanzines in 1983 that Rob Zombie remembers who would go off to sign some of your favorite metal bands. And all the while, still staying in touch with hardcore. Like, the amount of people that we're going to have coming on in the next couple weeks ships away from, the like, the sonic difference in hardcore into more of the businessing, the business dealings and the people that work to make either more money for labels or more success for labels, which would then rise the profile of the bands and the bands grow. And these kind of discussions become important because we've talked so much about where hardcore bands have failed, where hardcore culture has had significant cultural impact, but not a lot of commercial success and I think you're going to hear a lot of ideas on that. And so I didn't want to just run out another three-hour episode where I ask somebody a bunch of shit. And you're like, dude, just three me out get there. Because we're going to have another couple three-hour episodes coming soon. This is a lighter one. We went back to the beginning. 2006. This is hardcore. The fucking start. There was other starts. You know, um, in 1996, there was a club in... Chinatown called the Friends. There were some shows, some good, some bad, and I'd see Maximum Penalty in front of nobody. Basically, like a handful of people, two dozen people, and we were snarkingly kind of like fucking with the guy at the door, saying something to the effect of like, "Oh, we could sell more tickets." And he hands us sixty tickets and was like, "Here, four bands, fifteen tickets each. I need this amount of money before the show starts." And me and some friends went in, and I had a shitty band, and we sold them tickets very easily. And then it kind of came the thing. Someone would grab some bands. Hey, do you want to play? Yeah, can you sell 20 tickets? Yeah, we'll sell 20 tickets, no problem. You know, I'm 15 years old. You know, like, I'm playing bass in this band. I'm going to shows. That was, like, the excitement. But I realized that place sucked, and it wasn't what I wanted to do, so it would take... A whole another story where we get into my first hall shows and stuff. But it would take that first step in that direction. And I think for me, ultimately, the very beginning starts with knowing that hardcore has always been a, the place where I belong. And, and quickly saying that I, I'm not going to get deep here about what happened at Thompson Square Park? I'm going to tell you, I went to a show. Seen some bands. And I was reminded about what it felt like to be young. At a show. And shit getting out of control. And not like some dude ninja kicking people and everybody ducking. Like out of control when people had like Magic Martin written on their face. And people were throwing beer in the air. And it was like... Not a hardcore show from our modern time, but like something that can only be resurrected if you went to like, whether I won't say like the mid 90s or late 90s, but like a very chaotic moment when there wasn't organized mosh and it wasn't regulated, so to speak, enough that you couldn't get hit with either a beer can or knocked over by some moshing skinhead or smell weed in every single direction. It was just really vibrant and for the amount of people that we lost and the amount of people that we'll never see again. I I, I personally have just been not great mentally. 
and I feel so psyched. I feel so alive after being at that show that I'm reminded that hardcore has always been the place that kind of understood me. And 15 years later, I'm so happy that hardcore scene has trusted me to be able to book this thing and people travel from all over the world now to be a part of it, whether they play or they just see it every year. When are you going to do it? I, You know, like the coolest thing in the world is getting a DM where someone's like, one day I hope to do this is hardcore, whether they play or they just want to be a part of it. And I think for me, like thinking about being just like a dude that pours concrete or works in construction, to have people in other parts of the world excited to be a part of some of your work, that in itself is an accolade. And so this is hardcore is my way to give back. I've said it a million times for all the jerk off, young Joe shit, and the stuff that today people either get wrong or things that I need to learn how to better explain things so context doesn't take things out. I would say that hardcore and doing shit like this is hardcore is my giving back and my penance for this community, raising me, teaching me, letting me grow, giving me contacts, giving what Ernie Talbert said in an earlier episode, access and exposure. It all came from touring, traveling, meeting people. And it was very hard to not do one last year. Brian Dilworth died in early March. We lost our Stuart and our biggest supporter. And it's even kind of weird thinking about just the difference between dealing with Mr. Chan versus dealing with Brian and dealing with Jerry Market. And we were really elevated by that man. And I wish to God he was alive right now. I wish to God we could get him on the podcast and he could just tell these amazing stories because his stories to some degree probably do... Like, not that we're trying to compare notes, but the motherfucker did so much cool shit. And I think at one point he was lauded as the guy who paid Fugazi the most amount of money they've ever been paid. And, like, this podcast is talking to people like him, but I'll never have that time to talk to him. I guess this is hardcore as many things to me. And it all started with 2006. And what to bring us back to the beginning, I'll keep you guys posted with poster stuff if and when I can get to it. Thanks to doing the Patreon. Right now, I literally have a backlog of things like this. And I wanted to get this one out. I've got four really long episodes that I'm editing after 10-hour work nights. And they're all going to be rocking and rolling. And then we'll be really adding shit. I feel like I have a schedule where I have a bunch of shit recorded and a bunch of notes taken where like every three days I'll be dropping shit on Patreon after May 9th. If you haven't gone to our Patreon, it's www.patreon.com slash this is hardcore. Our guest next week, Paul Conroy. I I don't know if there is someone who has done more crazy shit and just his roadmap for success is so much different than so many. And he has so many like little things that touch back to hardcore and it just there's so many things that come out of this conversation. And so I'm really looking forward to it 
and then the ones to follow are just going to complement that one to every degree. And then we've got so many guests lined up. Thank you for the support on this podcast. Thank you for loving hardcore as much as I do. Um, I had a lot of people tell me they listen to the podcast of the show, and it's people that I look up to, people that I wish to have on the show. And because I was there, I got a bunch of people that are going to be on the show. And so I just love you guys, and I appreciate everything. The show notes are going to be pretty fucking simple here, but you can go to it at TAHCpodcast.com. All right, I'll talk to you next Friday. Check out the Pillar of Irie. Get it on Triple B. Thank you so much.